Listener Production. Inflation coming down, well, how's the Reserve Bank doing that? It's taking money out of the economy. You know, that's what its interest rate increases do. And yet the government's going to be putting $21 billion into the economy in six months. We are threading a needle in 2024, and it could go wrong. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer, but more importantly for our purposes, the host of The Good Oil. Now, if you're not yet familiar with the phrase, I hope you are, but if you're not, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff. And that's exactly what we aim to do with this podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. Now, today's extra special guest is someone who really does know what's going on and has done for a long, long time. He's one of the most trusted and well-known economists in the country, a regular expert when it comes to breaking down the budget, and one of the best brains in the business. Chris Richardson, welcome to The Good Oil. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you for the lovely introduction. I I usually summarise it as tall and handsome, but um, uh, to be fair... (laughs) I, I uh, specifically characterise it as tall, handsome, and delusional, uh, because if you're delusional, you can be anything else you want. <laughs> I'm going to adopt that, I think, right away, mate. I've always thought I was one of the funniest blokes I know, but uh, that might be that delusion you're talking about. I'm not entirely sure. Mate, um, you have had a, a very long and storied career. Uh, you have worked for some of the biggest consulting groups in the country. Uh, you have been everywhere when it comes to providing your insights. In fact, your website is richinsight.com.au. So if anyone wants to get a bit more from Chris, uh, we'll do a bit of that at the end, but you can get it from, from there in particular. Um, but mate, you have been, I reckon most people who are kind of casual economics watchers probably know you largely from some TV appearances. You're regularly breaking down the budget on the ABC. You are one of those go-to experts when it comes to what does this mean for the country, uh, both budget and other things that are going on. So I guess I want to just start with that. And maybe we'll we'll take a step back in a minute, but maybe we can kind of just start with your journey uh, through your economic life, through your professional life. How does Chris Richardson become one of the most well-known and trusted economists in Australia? Uh, by accident, uh, which <laughs> I, I suspect is or should be everybody's answer to the the sort of how did you become. Uh, there's there's a range of uh, coincidence uh, in there. My favourite teacher at school was the economics uh, teacher. My dad worked for a bank. Dad was just old enough to catch the end of uh, World War Two. Uh, his family fortunes had taken a bit of a downturn in the Depression. Dad had uh, had to um, leave school to get a job, uh, so he never finished uh, school. Uh, but coming back from World War II, uh, University of Queensland had a return serviceman's um, program, so he just turned up. He, he never actually told him he hadn't finished school. So he hadn't finished school, but he did get an economics degree, worked at a bank. My favourite uh, teacher was uh, the economics teacher, I, uh, I studied economics. I um, uh, went to Treasury. The series of accidents kept going. I, I bought a house. Interest rates went to 17.5%. I needed money. Uh, <laughs> I became the first employee of the two guys who set up Access Economics. I, I then went to the International Monetary Fund. Uh, back to Access. We became Deloitte Access. And uh, these days, I'm just me. Just you. Um 
I I love that. You, I, I I will give your Twitter handle a bit of a plug a bit later, mate. But I do love that you call yourself your bio on Twitter is Chris from Accounts, which I just think I think is hysterically funny. Uh, I like I like that a lot. Maybe I mean that that's a very potted history of how you got there. And I, mate, I think you're right. I you hear people talk about you know the role of luck and the role of hard work, and uh, a lot of the self-made people like to believe it's all hard work and and discount the value of luck. Maybe that's a maybe that's a nice stepping off point for the Australian economy because uh, we have for a long time originally, ironically, and maybe less so these days, Pianna who's saying it, talks about Australia being the lucky country. Of course, Donald Horn originally didn't mean it uh, in, a, in a straight complimentary way. And yet, over the last 30-odd years, uh, we all had a COVID recession, but over the last 30-odd years, it feels to me we have been the recipients of more than our fair share of luck, more luck than we probably deserved. And yet, we're now, I guess, starting to struggle. Maybe we're paying the price for that. Maybe we're just in the middle of an issue that everyone else is, is facing. How do you characterise Australia's current economic circumstances? There is a lot of pain out there. Um, you can argue about the best uh, way to measure uh, individual living standards. Um, the particular measure I use, though, has gone back uh, by over 10% uh, since it peaked uh, in late um, 2021. Now, that peak was partly artificial at the time. The government was um, giving us money, if, if you like. Um, but uh, for Australians who, over a long period of time, uh, and as you know, you know, uh, a lot of it due to luck, we have enjoyed very, very high living standards by uh, world standards. And to go backwards so much... Uh, and, and on a range of fronts, um, you know, that's a bigger fall in our living standards than uh, we saw in past recessions. And, and over and above that, past recessions, the pain wasn't actually shared fairly. It was the unemployed who hurt the most. Uh, this time, it's pretty wide. Uh, so, you know, wages haven't kept up with prices. So most people, you know, the purchasing power of, of uh, what they earn from their job has gone backwards. Uh, interest rates have roared up. And the tax take has roared up. And a lot of people are all three, of course. You know, you, you're you uh, you're a wage earner, you're a borrower, uh, and you're a taxpayer. Um, but it is a lot of pain out there. Mate, you mentioned your, your preferred metric, but you didn't name it. It has been back 10% since late 2021. Are we talking about real wages here, or is there something else that you prefer to use as a, as a measure? Uh, it is something else. It's 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 wider. Uh, so the Bureau of Stats in Australia is blessed to have uh, good numbers professionally done. Um, but one of the numbers uh, they put out uh, is household disposable income. Uh, so the the amount of money that uh, people earn, and it's essentially uh, from everywhere. Uh, so it's not just uh, wages and salaries. You might be earning uh, interest. You might be earning dividends. You might be earning rent. Uh, you know, pretty much however the income uh, comes. Um, to get to disposable, uh, they only take out uh, two things. They take out uh, interest payments. Again, interest counted as income, but it counts as a uh, payment uh, and personal tax. So disposable income uh, and then take inflation out so you can compare it over time, uh, put it on a per head basis. So uh, I would, you know, it's, it's not a perfect measure of living standards, um, but it's the simplest and, and easiest. 
I like that a lot, mate. I, I am already, I've got about 84 different notes in front of me now and I'm mindful that we might, we're not going to have six and a half hours for this podcast. So I will do my best uh, to try and hit some of the, the key points. Um, I, I, you've mentioned a whole lot of stuff in that answer, mate. Can I start with the tax take? Um, we have at one time a remarkably high total tax take, total you know tax receipts from the government. At the same time, we have a, a headline, nominal surplus, I would argue, and you may disagree, a meaningful structural deficit still. And so if we've got more tax coming in, still a meaningful structural deficit, although again, you're welcome to disagree with the premise. So at some level, we're obviously spending a lot more as well. Now, whenever you talk about government uh, balance sheet, government P&L, the, the combination of, of receipts and, and expenditure, everything becomes ideological or philosophical at some point. What should we spend money on? How much money should we take in tax? And so these are un- these are impossible to answer entirely objectively. But I, I guess I'd, I'd ask you to just kind of put that in context for us. Um, the money we're spending, the, the tax we're taking in, uh, the, the, the budget position at a structural level. What are, you, what are your thoughts about, about government finance, how things have changed and, and where we're at? Uh, so, so very early on, I became fascinated by budgets, but they are, uh, you know, if you step back, it's the national social compact. You know, this is, uh, so Australians can choose to help each other, and we often do in our families and our friends, you might donate to charities or whatever else, but uh, the, the sort of official channel, if you like, uh, how we help each other and take care of each other is through our budgets. And now that's uh, obviously not just a federal budget, either state and local or whatever, um, but federal is the standout. And I love it, right? You know, so what do we do? We, we tax workers, we tax businesses, we get that money, we spend it on the young and the old and the sick and the poor and a defence force, and we try to get it right. Now, that means pretty much every element of, of that. Uh, it means getting the spending priorities right, getting the tax priorities right, getting the overall balance right, we get some pretty huge swings uh, in the budget. Now, most people assume that the swings happen because of the decisions that the politicians take. Uh, in practice, it's usually the everything else that dominates and throws it around. A simple example, uh, and one of the reasons why the budget is in uh, surplus, or probably will stay in surplus uh, this financial year, uh, is that the world can give you pay rises or pay cuts. Uh, if you think uh, Australia, you know, in rough terms, sells iron ores and buys big screen TV, and sometimes the price of iron ore is riding high or, or whatever else we sell to the world, wool, gold, sometimes it's low, sometimes those big screen TVs cost us a lot, sometimes they don't. Um, and getting the relativity of that, says, well, you know, does is the world giving us a pay rise or a pay cut? Uh, in recent times, the world has uh, been more generous to Australia than at any time in a century and a half, because it used to be boring, uh, that measure. Uh, and and uh, in... Um, 1986, you know, we called it a banana republic crisis when, when uh, what the world was was paying us fell away a bit. You now look at that on a chart and you can barely um, make it out. Uh, what happened is that starting uh, in the early 2000s, uh, China began to grow very fast and it uh, its construction model or its development model very focused on construction, building stuff. Uh, which took iron ore and coal, which Australia had. So the you know as the demand 
uh, wrought up and supply uh, struggled to uh, to catch up. Suddenly, the world was was paying us the big bucks, and and you know it's there've been various. Uh, peaks it peaked uh, just ahead of the global financial crisis 2008 peaked again uh, middle of uh, 2012 and it's more gently peaked recently um, but the recent one just start you know and if the world throws money at us we get a chunk of that now, you know you can argue maybe we should do it differently and tax this or that differently but we do benefit the other thing that's gone on though so so if you like you know, why is the budget doing better? Reason number one, the pie is bigger than you think it is. Now, that's not true for Mr. and Mrs. Suburbs. We're talking, you know, again, iron ore and stuff here. But the second thing is a very Mr. and Mrs. Suburbs thing. It is an old uh, lesson that uh, inflation is a tax. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's not so much the size of the pie, but the shares of the pie. Inflation takes money from families. Um, gives it to businesses. Businesses could ride out a, a burst of inflation uh, better than uh, families can. Um, but it really gives it to the tax man. And if you look at uh, the the uh, increase in uh, personal tax, uh, that has taken just as much, in fact, slightly more, out of uh, family uh, budgets uh, in the last uh, year or so than increases in uh, interest rates have done. And so... Given that circumstance, man, there's a great, a great summary. Thank you, a great explanation. Uh, we still are in a position, though, where despite that massive tax take, we're only barely just falling across the line when it comes to that reported surplus. Take that back out, as hopefully it will at some point. Inflation, well, prices never go back, or almost never go back down, but the rate of price increase should hopefully moderate and hopefully do it quickly because, as you're right, it's absolutely smashing people. Where do we where do we end up? How does the budget look structurally? If the tax takes here to stay, maybe things are better than maybe they might have been on a budget level. Even though, as you say, the taxpayer of the poor household is paying for it for exactly that reason. The inflation is is doing that to us. On the other hand, without that inflated tax take, the budget position would look abominable. Um, where do you feel like we sit on 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 a structural basis then? It's not as bad as I suspect uh, people think. So, so yes, you know, those two coincidences, uh, I call it war and inflation. War is part of what price, uh, increased the price of what the world paid us recently. Um, between them, Russia and Ukraine sell food and fuel to the world, so does Australia. Uh, so those prices went up uh, when, uh, when war started. Um, you know, take out those two things and it does hurt. But the overall... Australian budget position. Now, uh, state budgets have worsened a lot uh, in, in recent years. But if you're just looking at the Feds, uh, it's a very Harry Met Sally moment. The rest of the world would look at Australian federal finances and and say, you know, I'll I'll have what they're having. Debt and deficits, uh, you, you know, we talk about it a lot. And, and again, this is a uh, this is in many ways my life's work. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by this stuff, but uh, we are currently too worried uh, about it. Uh, the current debt debt is a share of national income. Net debt is the right thing to focus on. Uh, you know, you've got some money in the bank, basically, as well as what you owe the bank. You, you focus on net debt. Um, net debt as a share of national income is lower today than it was uh, before COVID hit. Now, I'm going to back up and say that again. Uh, it is lower <laughs> today than it was before COVID hit. Again, war and inflation. You know, world gave us money. Uh, and inflation uh, took money from families, gave it to governments. Debt 
much lower, a reasonable chance of a surplus uh, this year. And the ongoing position, again, not as bad as people think. We do, uh, every handful of years, uh, we take a longer-term look at uh, the budget, those intergenerational reports. People didn't notice that the last one, uh, which was out three, four months ago, actually said that debt as a share of uh, national income would keep falling for several decades ahead. It said, if you look at those official figures from several months ago, that net debt would hit a trillion dollars, but it would hit it in 2046. And those numbers uh, you would currently say are too pessimistic. Uh, so, so somewhere around about the middle of this century, uh, we should uh, reconvene, have another podcast chat on good oil, and check in and, <laughs> and see whether we've we've gone over a trillion dollars. Um, now, part of this is unsustainable. It's, it's not as though there's been a big increase in spending. Some of it was unavoidable. You know, Australia was not funding our social services. You know, a range of uh, royal commissions and and inquiries pointed out that aged care and, and and a bunch of things weren't being done to standards that people would be happy with. And and this government, uh, even more so actually the last one, tipped in a lot of dollars. Uh, the biggest moving thing there is the NDIS, um, the, where uh, the, the uh, official forecast of how much that's going to cost has incredibly rocketed. Uh, in the last year and a bit, uh, this government back in May said it was going to tackle it. Uh, the the uh, announced decisions a couple of weeks ago were mostly actually relabeling the costs rather than getting to the you know. So so there are problems around uh, our spending on social services. There are problems um, too around our spending on defence. Turns out that uh, a bunch of uh, key nations. Uh, with powerful mil militaries are run by, uh, and here the uh, the correct jargon is crazy people. Uh, and <laughs> is it, it in the Economist textbook, Chris? That is, yeah. Uh, check it. <laughs> check in the back. Number of mentions. Um, and in a world where crazy people have their hands on on relevant buttons, sadly, Australia does need to spend more on defending ourselves uh, than we should. And, and the government's allowed. So the 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 old aim used to be under both sides of politics for several decades, has been spend 2% of national income on defence. Uh, effectively, that's shifted to about two and a quarter. It means slightly bigger increase than that because they never really did hit 2%. So, you know, the, the cost of running our national social compact higher now, uh, defence more costly, social security more costly than we thought. We need to address that in a variety of ways. We need to be very careful with our spending. We owe that to ourselves, but we also need to get our taxes right. Um, there are things we can and should do in, in our tax system, but uh, it's not going to happen because that well is extremely poisoned. I think discovering or embracing the power of markets was a real positive of the 80s, 90s and 2000s. I think allowing markets to do things, to allocate resources, to use the, um, the, the economic term most efficiently, I think is a really good thing. It does strike me though, if you look at the water rights market, the emissions trading schemes of various types and the NDIS in particular, the idea, and I don't want to use the, the term neoliberal because it's super loaded with a whole lot of stuff, but it does seem like 
a lot of our politics and maybe some of our bureaucracy has kind of swallowed hook, line, and sinker that a market should be the solution for everything. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a markets guy. I'm a capitalist. Um, but I'm not a, I'm not a markets at all costs and I'm not a free market guy. I'm a well-regulated markets guy. So I'll put my, now my colors to the mast. But the NDIS seems like when you've got someone else paying and, and someone differently receiving the services, it's just asking for, for rorts, right? And, and it's very easy to look at that big number and say, well, obviously this or obviously that. I try and use evidence where I can. So I don't make too big a deal of it. But it does seem to me in a lot of those areas where we have made some of those mistakes, it is the expectation that by calling it a market and then trying to set up two sides of something and walking away, we do we do we have more trouble than we we want? I think I think so. I think, I'm not sure we necessarily even cause more problems than we solve, but we certainly cause a lot of problems. I would absolutely agree with that, and and I, I guess I'd make the point that it is it is the most marvelous engine that we can hook um, national prosperity and uh, national fairness um, up to. Bet on self-interest. Uh, it's it's the horse that'll run the hardest, basically. Uh, and and so if you can get people working in their self-interest, and and but the trick is, as you say, well-regulated markets. Uh, you need to give people the right incentives so that they do things that benefit them and benefit the community. And getting that combination right, we we have not got the regulation right on a bunch of fronts. Uh, you know, you mentioned a whole range of things broadly. I would agree toll roads uh, would be an example of something we have messed up pretty badly. Economics is the study of incentives and you need to get incentives lined up. And the NDIS is uh, a superb example of where almost every incentive in the system at every level is wrong. And, and we haven't yet done much to change that. Now, you know, to be clear, uh, Australia used to not do enough by our disabled and, and this was a disaster and it was getting worse and it was absolutely correct that as a nation, uh, we take this on. This is a community responsibility. It should be, uh, you know, a big part of our national social compact, but equally, and again, to use the jargon, we've screwed up, all right, you know, uh, we used to fail the disabled. Now, in many ways, we fail the disabled and taxpayers uh, at the same time. Both sides of politics, I guess, have can't exactly be proud of, of what they've done. They've played politics at every single moment, all the way back to its introduction, you know, introduced effectively just ahead of a uh, an election that the outgoing government was expecting to lose. So, it, you know, it essentially promised all the NDIS would be all things to everyone and... Um, no, it, it is an absolute mess. And unless and until uh, we get the incentives right, um, we haven't fixed that problem. I love that. It's a great summary, mate. You, you talked about fairness in your answer then, and, and you mentioned distribution earlier. Uh, and I guess I'm curious with an economist hat on. You mentioned incentives. I think it's a really nice way to kind of combine these two concepts as we talk about the fairness and, and the distribution of wealth, income, services, uh, all of the above, and probably a lot more too. We are in a situation where we're arguably, or maybe not even arguably, in a per capita recession right now, to the extent that the labels matter. And they kind of don't really, except that they help us categorize things. They, I think, have behavioral impacts, by the way. You put the capital R recession on the front page of a newspaper and you know, you're know you almost locking in another three or four months of bad news because people freak out about it. 
but I am curious as to if I, if I if I kind of throw those <laughs> completely unfairly throw those three words at you at the same time or, or phrases per capita distribution and fairness. Where are we? Where are we sitting, mate? Where? Where? What are we doing well? What are we doing badly? Um, the, the tax take, uh, company taxes, wealth taxes, international or multinational corporations. So much here that I think. I dare say, if I if I gave you a magic wand in a couple of days, you, 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 maybe you change a lot. Maybe you wouldn't change anything. But I am curious how you how you kind of consider those three ideas at the same time. Yeah, and and when I talk about you know the budget as a national social compact, and to some extent, you know, the government is a national social compact. What is it trying to achieve? It's trying to achieve two uh, things: prosperity and fairness. And and you're asking about the fairness question. Prosperity is a, you know, it's a per head thing. It's a living standards thing. It needs to be sustainable. That raises all sorts of uh, questions, you know, climate questions, for example. Um, but fairness. And um, first point to make is that at any given moment, you know, we can tend to think prosperity and fairness are deeply in competition with each other. It is worth also remembering that the most prosperous nations in the world are, by and large, the fairest nations in the world. And there's both cause and effect uh, there. A higher standard of living makes people more willing to share. Uh, people being more willing to share actually helps us all work together and achieve a, a higher standard of living. There's great research on, on all that stuff. You know, it is essentially the we're all in it together. Uh, it also goes back to that very first thing uh, we chatted about, uh, luck. I have been extremely lucky in life and, uh, you know, that's worked out well for me. A whole bunch of people, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Um, uh, when I think of prosperity and fairness, yes, Australia's done well. Um, a lot of that used to be because uh, the opposition of the day would agree with the government of the day that, you know, something that had been screwed up need, needed to be fixed up. Um, but by and large, that bipartisanship has been uh, on the decline for uh, a quarter of a century. Um, you know, both sides in opposition are increasingly bad or bad for the nation. You know, they're superb at being in opposition, but they, when they don't compromise, we don't get stuff done. And so our prosperity increasingly relies on luck, and sure, luck has run our way, but, uh, you know, luck's a fortune. It's not a strategy. Um, fairness, if you compare us to a bunch of others, and, you know, that basic thought that uh, we're much fairer than, for example, uh, the US is, uh, by and large, we're less fair than Europe. Um, to be to be more exact, we're probably less fair than Northern uh, Europe. Um, we're not as bad on the fairness front as you might think. Where we are outstandingly bad, and it's an easy fix, and it's not even a terribly expensive fix, is our unemployment benefit. Uh, so, so um, people uh, think. Uh, you know, and, and economists would say there's a risk of it. If, if your unemployment benefit is too high, uh, well, you know, give people an incentive to work. You know, you, you hop the surfboard and, and uh, you hit Byron Bay. Uh, you know, um, so you've got to get that right. You've got to give people dignity, uh, you know, because a lot of it is bad luck. Um, uh, but you've, you've also got to give them incentive. Or in other words, that ratio of how much we pay by way of unemployment benefit versus what people could get 
um, or with a job, is extremely important. Both this government and the last government have raised the unemployment benefit a little. Uh, prior to those uh, two moves, ours was the worst, the lowest unemployment benefit as a share of either average wages, median wages or minimum wages in the rich country club, the OECD, you know, 30 nations basically. Uh, we are now not quite as bad on that measure as Greece. Uh, the the Morrison government's increase moved us ahead of Greece. The Albanese's government has moved us a little further ahead of Greece, but not by much, right? And and you know, so why don't we do it? Why do both sides of politics struggle to do it? Our answer is because they lose votes when they do it. You know, the sadly, too many Australians think doll bludger when that's not what the numbers say. And, and you know, when you talk about vast numbers of people, uh, everybody out there who just thought, well, I know a doll bludger, you may well do. Um, but it is uh, numbers of my game and, and that's not what the overall number story tells us. I love that, mate. I think I was thinking doll bludger as well, very much a relic of the 80s, I think, that we've never really been able to shake. It was such an effective political attack line that neither party nor the major party has been prepared to even think about addressing it in the meantime, other than desperately as they've needed to, as you say, with both the, the current and previous government doing a little tiny bit um, to, to try and, you know, as a sop uh, rather than as genuine reform. I don't know this is necessarily, you may not agree actually, and nor do I know that we have enough time to go right through it, but it strikes me that our way of regulating the economy to maximise prosperity, as you said, um, and also minimise inflation at the same time requires unemployment. There, there is something to my mind, and again, if you disagree, by all means say it out loud, um, there is something to my mind which is we kind of say, well, if you have capacity constraints on resources, in this case human resources, prices will go up. It is in our national collective interest to have a few people unemployed, not as an aim, but as a result, because we know when we get to, if we were to get to 2 or 1% unemployment, uh, we'd have jobs unfilled, we have capacity issues, we'd have prices go through the roof. It almost seems like a necessary evil in our system, which is, I would argue, worth it for the national financial prosperity, but it then almost by definition requires us to be far more, and not even generous as in too generous, but far more reasonable in the way we treat that because if we're signing up for the system, we need to sign up for the benefits, but we also need to sign up for the the, the uncomfortable but necessary outcomes. And we should kind of have some sort of moral responsibility surely to to make those people whole um, as, as a condition of our prosperity, surely. Well, uh, so we recently got uh, the the federal government updated its uh, forecast or Treasury's forecast of the economy. Uh, they continue to think that the unemployment rate will go to four and a half percent from the low of uh, just under three and a half percent. That's effectively a, an extra 150,000 people unemployed. And if we treat them terribly, right, you know, uh, then, then that's a tragedy for each individual. But when you add 150,000 uh, people to those ranks, um, you know, that's pretty awful. Um, the great tragedies, economic tragedies of my lifetime have been the recessions that have pushed up the unemployment rate uh, close to 10%. And, you know, I mentioned before, we're seeing a really big hit to living standards at the moment, but I also said uh, past recessions, lots of the pain concentrated on those who lost their job, right? You know, life's lottery um, ended up badly for those people. Part of the advantages of having a more flexible and indeed less regulated economy 
uh, is is one where the pain is shared, you know, not just by people becoming unemployed, but you, you see less of that because you see, for example, you know, when, when the economy is out of whack, the things I mentioned, right, you know, wages growing less fast than prices, uh, interest rates go up, um, uh, the tax share of your income goes up. That is broadly a fairer way for society to handle these things than for a relative handful of people uh, to become unemployed. Could we do this stuff better? Oh, yes. I, I You know, I'm frustrated by so many things on, on so many fronts that we screw up. Um, I, uh, I think uh, both major... Uh, Parties, coalitions have have their blind uh, spots. Uh, sometimes those blind spots are uh, mysteriously linked to to who donates the money to them. Um, but you know, you see a change of government, and, and then you see the you know one set of mates uh, shuffled in and doing better. One set of mates shuffled out and and uh, doing worse. Uh, and uh, you know, it's part of the reason why uh, I think it's healthy for us to. Um, to switch parties in government every now and then. Um, but I'd also say that the incentives, you know, um, uh, oppositions have terrible incentives. Um, governments aren't much worse. You want their incentives to be uh, to work for the community good. And sadly, all too often, uh, that's in practice not what they're doing. You know, they're focused on on uh, winning the next election uh, and and making good judgment, good policy, uh, you know that that gets sacrificed on the altar of that far too regularly. Yeah, mate, I um I, I think that's absolutely true. I, I I am astonished by the loss of um popularity of the current government having done almost nothing and how much they may well have chosen to have done not again from a political or ideological perspective just in general uh for for their for their term thus far have had so little to show for uh the 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 popularity they've lost in the meantime i think it was paul capital paul keating who said you know government starts dying on the day that it's elected and he said to kerry o'brien once that political capital is made to be spent um it doesn't it doesn't strike me that any government's genuinely spent political capital I don't know. I, I want to say since Howard's days, maybe Rudd's. Uh, again, not not being party political here, just the simple reality of the way politicians treat things. I have a sense that there's a there's and this is a political comment rather than a, a, an economics one necessarily, but there is a sense that the, to your point about what oppositions agreed to do, the bipartisanship that you know Barry O'Farrell, the former New South Wales Premier, resigned over a bottle of Grange. Um, these days, I, I sense you could have a, a truck of Grange delivered to your house, and and the politicians would deny, ignore, never apologise, move on, and wait for the media cycle to change, rather than genuinely take responsibility for for that kind of thing. The, the things that ministers were were fired for in the past, uh, seem to be barely footnotes these days. In that context. I'll ask you for a, a, an economics and a political answer. How could we, should we change the way decisions are made? How do, we, how do we end up with a better polity when it comes to these economics decisions? I don't reckon your comments, they're very straight and very clear, and I don't think they're that unpopular or that uncommonly held. And yet our politicians seem consistently out of touch with best practice, as almost everyone in the economics profession would suggest it should be done. Yeah, and um, Paul Keating's uh, chief of staff, Don Russell, gave a, a wonderful speech uh, for us once at Access Economics and, um, uh, you know, pointed out that uh, politicians can be doers or pleasers. 
you can actually do something, right? You can take your your popularity at a given moment or on a given subject and do, you know, choose to fight uh, for it. Or you can be, you know, pleasers, always being careful, always trying not to lose those votes and, and, and the rest of it. And Don's point was essentially, you know, at some stage, every politician is going to lose. That might be because, you know, the, the government they're a part of loses. It might be they lose out in an internal struggle. It might be, you know, for, for whatever reason, all the way through to they, they choose to retire. And, and when you look back and ask the question, well, what did, what did you achieve? I mean, sadly, I think the ratio of um, doers to pleasers has been falling a lot over time. If you look at what's happened, uh, Ukraine, uh, both the initial attack by Russia, but in, indeed Ukraine through 2023, uh, trying to retake ground. Uh, you would, you would say, you know, and over the centuries, over the millennia, the pendulum sometimes swings uh, in favour of uh, defenders and, and sometimes swings uh, in favour of attackers. Well, it's militarily, it's swung back towards defenders. And, and that's very clear. It's got all sorts of implications. But if you apply the same analysis to policy and politics, how we change our national social compact over time, it has become much much easier over the last quarter of a century. It's true globally. Uh, I would say it's true more than the average uh, in Australia to defend the status quo, to stop things happening. Um, you know, uh, often, as I say, uh, oppositions are part of the problem. It, it began internationally. Uh, you see it in Australia. There is a marvellous uh, incentive for the opposition of the day, both of them do it, to keep saying no. Why? Because no is very effective. Uh, that you know the people who who uh, would be affected if the government did something, you know, are, are um, very upset about it. So you know, no uh, wins the uh, the opposition some votes. Uh, the people who would benefit from the the thing the government want to do, you know, usually aren't that focused, don't care that much. And so uh, over time, more and more no's mean the government fails to achieve things. Uh, and, and looks increasingly incompetent. Uh, now, you know, in opposition, uh, again, both sides of politics, and I, I would date it back uh, a quarter of uh, a century. Uh, both side, if you think one side is, is marvelous and the other side is, um, terrible, then you are a deep disappointment to your primary school mathematics teacher. <laughs> uh, if, if nothing else. Um, and and so uh, I think, uh, and by the way, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easier to say no just to things that would make Australia better. It's easier to say no to everything, you know, if, if there's a proposal to, that would actually make Australia worse. Uh, you know, again, you can stop it happening. Um, our national policy on far too much is as simple as no. And if you wonder you know, why we're not achieving much. Uh, it's because what is achieved is mostly decided on by the opposition leader of the day. You know, the some things still get through, if you like, uh, or or opposition from the opposition is not effective enough to stop it. Um, but the proportion of things that are bipartisan 
is deeply disappointing because I have a few grey hairs, not quite as old as I look. The um, uh, you know, I can I can remember uh, old Parliament House uh, where they were incredibly crushed in on each other. And to some extent, it was just harder to believe that the other side was inhuman and evil and, you know, because you saw them and, and you chatted with them as you squeezed past them in corridors. These days, I, you know, and I, I talk to politicians of both sides and, and, and a lot of them, and uh, over time, they, you know, they genuinely believe that the other side is both evil and incompetent. Uh, and and you know they, they tend to think they're the only thing standing in the way of of much worse outcomes. And and if that's your worldview, well, how do you actually compromise? Uh, and and we're not getting those compromises, and we're not advancing. I think that's a great summary, mate. I I dare so. Oh, I would suspect you might even be giving them a little bit too much credit. I I dare say a lot of the the nonus is just for pure political opportunistic stakes, regardless of what they think of of the government of the day individually or as a group. Uh, but maybe I'd rather believe yours is is the case rather than rather than mine, perhaps. Mate, let's um, let's get towards the end of this. You've been very generous with your time, mate. It's been a great chat. Um, let's look at twenty twenty four and beyond, if we could. As we roll out to the end of the year twenty twenty three, there is a lot of cloud hanging around. Uh, we have a dramatically slowing economy. I think growth was 0.2% for the last GDP numbers we saw. We have inflation, which is still too high at 4.9%. House prices, uh, you mentioned household disposable income, as unaffordable as they've been, close enough to it, particularly with those higher rates. Um, the interest rates themselves are, are very high for business and, and for individuals. And then you've got the population growth of half a million odd people that is putting pressure on, on things and, and causing some real questions to be asked, which frankly scare me because we've been through periods of xenophobia and racism before promoted by these sort of ideas and I think if we get to that point we'll have done ourselves and those people frankly more importantly an enormous disservice and yet I am a card-carrying optimist and, and I think you know we've been through these cloudy times before and the future is inevitably better not perfect not in every way but tends to tends to get better as we as we go into 2024 mate what are the how do you how do you assess the australian economy how would you assess the the prospects for the next 12 months what is you know how, how do you feel like we're positioned what are the risks and opportunities how likely is a recession uh, where do we where do we find ourselves yeah, and, and um, let me start with a global observation or, or two of them all around the world and in australia uh, it turns out we, we now know that economies are more resilient to higher interest rates than we expected. Uh, now, you know, so, so economies are stronger than we thought. We're, we're getting, uh, you know, not recessions in, in most places. And, uh, you know, well, the follow up thought then is, well, hang on, does, if economies aren't slowing as much as we thought, uh, is inflation worse than we thought? Well, the second thing is, no, inflation has actually fallen more. Uh, in Australia and around the world than, than most expectations. Uh, well, how do you get that if the first thought is, you know, higher interest rates aren't working as well as they used to? Uh, the answer, the, the second point is, um, you know, a big chunk of the inflation problem actually turned out uh, to be that uh, supply was broken rather than demand was too high. Now, both those things happen. Inflation took off when, you know, demand much stronger than supply, but a lot of the improvement around the world has seen supply get better, and, and that's the better way to bring down inflation because it's a, a less damaging. So uh, two almost offsetting errors, if you like, are producing soft landings everywhere. I think they will produce a soft landing here. Um, Australia's case, you know, if you look at some of the specifics, unusually we have 
entered inflation a bit later. Uh, um, that means it's going to come down uh, a bit later here. Uh, the good news being seen in the rest of the world is, is uh, you know, it is happening here, but it's happening a little bit slower. And I remain an optimist on inflation. I think it's going to come down pretty fast. And, and at that stage, well, some of the squeeze on living standards, uh, you know, falls away. Uh, wages are already growing now as fast as prices. They're not really catching up much, but they, they will get there uh, in the end. Australia's case is complicated by a big tax cut uh, coming in the middle of 2024. You know, the stage three social media rages about this stuff. I model this stuff, right, you know, and yes, it's unfair. Uh, but it is not unfair to anything like the extent that, uh, that, that people think uh, it is. It's too big. I would trim it a little. But perhaps, you know, the, the most interesting question for Australia in 2024 will be, is it too soon? Because, uh, you know, inflation coming down, well, how's the Reserve Bank doing that? It's taking money out of the economy. You know, that's what its interest rate increases do. And yet the government's going to be putting $21 billion into the economy uh, in six months. And you need the next six months to see a very sharp fall in inflation to stop the Reserve Bank worrying that, you know, oh, hang on, inflation's hanging around more than we expected. And oh dear, still hanging around more than we expected at the time the government is starting to throw money into the economy. Now, it, as I say, I'm, I'm actually pretty hopeful that that will be fine, but we are threading a needle in 2024 and it could go wrong. People need to be uh, aware of that is, is a thought. Um, second, you know, so so who, basically our living standards having fallen, we've, we've now got to grind to get them back, but you will see the timing, uh, you know, in most places around the world, um, interest rates will fall uh, sooner than they will. In Australia, in the US, for example, markets are saying March. In Australia, they'll fall a bit later because most of our initial cost of living relief will come as that tax cut to taxpayers rather than um, uh, to borrowers. Now, markets in Australia somewhat remarkably think we'll be getting uh, rate cuts in July. I can't say that makes sense. You know, it's the same month where these uh, big tax cuts yeah, right. arrive. Uh, it's, uh, you know, best guess is uh, October, November. Uh, before we see rate cuts uh, in Australia. Uh, no, I don't see recession, um, you know, in part uh, population growth is uh, will come off its peak, but it will remain much too strong to um, to see Australia drop into recession, you know, partly, again, because recession is a terrible measure of how we're doing. That's why I've been talking about our standard of living. Beautiful. Can I say, listeners, by the way, if you're not following Chris on Twitter, you're absolutely missing out. His Twitter threads are spectacularly good. I'm not saying this because you're on the podcast, Chris. I, I've chatted with you on, on Twitter uh, backwards and forwards a couple of times. Uh, the the you, say, you say quick thinking. Uh, there's a lot of thought. There's a lot of uh, very logical setting out of your thoughts and issues on Twitter. So if you're not following at Chris Economist on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, get in there just for Chris. But if you are on Twitter, at Chris Economist, um, absolutely worth a follow. You'll be smarter. You'll be much better informed uh, for following Chris. Mate, you've been very, very generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me for The Good Oil. Many, many thanks, Scott. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly. <laughs>